This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, as Joel just said, my name is Ron, and uh, I'm excited to be able to teach us today. You know, we're, we're in this series called Finding Hope Through Those Who Have Gone Before Us. And one of the things that we've realized as we've worked our way through Daniel 1, 2, and 3 is that there are these four guys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're able to thrive in unbelievably tough circumstances. And there's a reason that they could thrive, and we're pressing into that reason or those reasons because we have a fundamental belief that what enabled them to thrive can also enable us to thrive, no matter how tough the circumstances get. So I have a question to ask you. Do you remember, as 2020 was wrapping up, we all thought, thank God 2020 is done. And we have a brand new year, 2021, and it's going to be so much better. That's pathetically humorous, isn't it? Yeah. And here we are. 2021 has wrapped up. And we're at the beginning of 2022 thinking, oh yeah, brand new year. Somehow it seems like same song, third verse, a little bit longer, a little bit worse, right? Yeah. So... I wish I could say something that would magically just make all that disappear, but I can't. But you know what? You know what we can do? It is entirely possible that no matter what challenge 2022 brings our way, it's entirely possible for us to thrive in the middle of it. Are you up for that? Yeah. And so... The things that enable them to thrive will also enable us to thrive. So we're going to press into that as we look at a transformational shift that needs to happen in us in order for this to take place. So let's jump into our teaching and let's realize that what the, these heroes that came before us what they learned and what they did that enabled them to thrive was based on three great principles that are actually a foundation stone of their faith. And they're really simple. The first is a realization that life is hard. I wish I could tell you life was easy, but it's actually not. If there's anything that the scriptures make clear to us, it's that we live in a broken world. And certainly you don't need any evidence for that, right? We live in a very broken world and we are very broken people. Even the best of us are broken. And when you take broken people and you put them in a broken world, life is going to have challenge. So let's not be surprised And when a challenge comes our way, think, why me, God? What did I do? 
It's just part of our world. The second principle is life, life is hard, but God is at work. Listen to this. In this broken world, there is a healer. That's so important to know. You're not going through this broken world alone. There is a healer that if you will come alongside him, he will begin to heal the brokenness in your life and by your influence will begin to heal the brokenness in the lives of those around you and begin to bring healing to your broken world. But that's not where the story ends. There's a third principle. Not only is there a healer at work in this world, but the healer is bigger. Bigger than anything you will ever run into. God is. There's nothing you will ever encounter that's going to rock God back on his throne going, golly, I didn't see that coming. No, no, no. Everything that comes into your world, you can look up and look to God and God will say, it's okay. We got this. Not you got it. We, we got it. Yeah. So here's what we have to know. Here's the baseline principle, and that is, if we're going to have the hope that these four guys had, we have to build the faith that these four guys had. Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah, we can't just wish it. We have to actually build our faith. And there are specific ways to build our faith, and it will grow. And one of the things that you're doing here today, which is so great, whether you're here in the audience or whether you're watching at home, I trust that you are taking a step in building your faith. That in some way, when we are done with this service and done with this teaching and done with our worship this morning, in this setting where we gather, that your faith will in some way be stronger and more capable of supporting you as you leave this place or as you go about the rest of your week. But if that's going to take place, you know, I said these three principles were a foundation stone. They are. But did you know that there's a stone underneath them that actually enables these three principles to work. And today we're going to dig down to that level of the foundation of faith and we're going to look at that stone because it's huge. Now, just a heads up, it's profound. It's very easy to understand, but it is perhaps the most difficult thing I've ever tried to do in my life. And I know I'm not doing it alone. God's helping me with it. But this is that shift that actually enables me to see God differently, to see myself differently, and to see the whole world differently. And we'll see that it's a shift that takes me from a position of bondage to a position of freedom. You want to go home or you want to hear about it? Yeah, let's hear about it, right? Yeah, so let's dig into that. 
So there's a story, and one of the great things about this story is the central character in our story this morning is not a God worshiper. And I think often Christians have a tendency to view the world in sort of a weird way. We look at Joel and we say, oh, God's at work in Joel's life, of course, because he's a Jesus follower. And we look at the members of the worship band and we think God's at work in their life because they're all working in service of Jesus. So God's at work in their life. And in our moments of greatest clarity, we're able to look at ourselves and say, oh, God's at work in my life. But there's a grander truth that we are missing. I want you to just look around the room, just for a minute. Not, not weird, okay? Just look around, okay? Every person you see God is at work in them. And by the way, the next time you go to Safeway, I want you to take just a moment as you're pushing your grocery cart down the aisle and give yourself an opportunity to build your faith and your God perspective. And I want you to just look at person after person after person in Safeway. And I want you to tell yourself, God is at work in their life. Because there's not a person in the world that God is not at work in their life. Are you on board with that? You don't sound real sure about that. Are you on board with that? Yes. Okay. Now, if you came here this morning and you're not even sure you believe in God, that's okay. This is such a great place for you to come. But the very first message that you need to hear, and perhaps the most important message for you to hear, is that there is a God who created you to be his son or his daughter, and he is at work in your life, even if you don't know it, recognize it, or believe it. He loves you. Like a father loves his own children. And the main character in our story today is a king. And people who study these things and historical experts tell us that perhaps this king is the most powerful person who has ever lived on planet Earth. How about that? He worships idols and doesn't know a whole lot about the God who created the heavens and the earth and who gives life to everyone. And he's the central uh, person in our story. And our story begins with a statement that that king writes about himself. He said, I was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. You know what he's really saying? Life is good. You know what he was actually saying above and beyond that? I'm spoiled rotten. That's what he was actually saying. Of course he could be contented. He bought anything he wanted. I'm not sure that's contentment. Okay, that's a story for another day. He goes to bed that night and he has a dream 
that turns out to be a nightmare. And it's so intense, it wakes him up and it shakes him to his core. In his own words, he says, I was terrified. So the next morning he calls in all of his, um, his, his enchanters, all these guys that worship all these idols and claim to have all these powers and magicians and so forth. He brings them all in and he tells them his dream and he says, give me an interpretation. And they all look at each other and go, man, King, you had a weird dream. I don't see any application. Do you think that gives the king any peace? No, now he's even more terrified until he remembers, oh, a couple of years ago, I had another dream and there was a guy, Daniel was his name, I gave him the name Belteshazzar, and he not only could interpret my dream, he actually told me what my dream was. I'm going to call that dude in. So he brings Daniel in and he says, Daniel, I have all the faith in the world in you. You have a wisdom and a spirit about you and the gods have given you the ability to interpret dreams. So I'm going to tell you my dream and I know however you interpret it, it's going to come to pass that way. Now, the last thing that Daniel had told the king in the dream before was, oh, dude, it's not me, it's him. I don't have any ability to interpret dreams, but God does. So Daniel sits there and the king begins to unfold the dream. He says, now, Daniel, listen, as I was dreaming, <clears throat> there was this giant tree that reached up and the top of the tree reached and touched the bottom of heaven. And it was so big, you could see it from one end of the earth to the other. And the birds all came and nested in its branches. And the wild animals came and sought shelter underneath it. And people lived there, and its fruit fed the entire world. He said, it's like the most awesome tree I've ever seen. And he said, while I was watching, I heard an angel, a messenger from heaven, and the messenger said, cut down the tree, scatter its fruit, <coughs> strip all the leaves off of its branches. And he said, no sooner had the voice sounded than other heavenly messengers came and they felled that giant tree and it crashed to the ground and they scattered its fruit across the face of the earth and they stripped all the branches of their leaves. And then that voice from heaven came again. And it said, put a fence around that stump. And don't uproot it. Because we want to give it a chance to regrow. But it's not going to regrow until seven seasons have passed. And as the king was telling Daniel the vision and God was downloading the interpretation, the king looks at Daniel and the color is, is, is just draining from Daniel's face. 
And, and the king looks and he can tell Daniel is really disturbed. And the king says, now listen, Daniel, <clears throat> don't be disturbed by the interpretation of the meaning. I'm a big boy. I can take it. Tell me what it is. And listen, when God gives you a message and it begins like this, because this is literally the first thing Daniel said. O king, I wished that this interpretation applied to your enemies. It's not going to go well, right? And he said, here's the deal, king. You are that giant tree. And you, your kingdom is magnificent. And literally the nations of the world are fed by things that are made in your kingdom. You have a lesson to learn. Because unfortunately, King, you think it's about you. And God wants you to know it's actually not about you. It's about him. So you're going to get cut down in your prime. And you're going to be driven from your palace in this city. And you're going to be, you're going to be given the mind of an animal. That's a little scary, don't you think? And your hair is going to grow, and your nails are going to grow, and you're going to become this weird-looking animal that people are going to drive out of the palace. And when seven seasons have passed, and you have learned your lesson, you'll be invited back into the palace. But you will come, my friend, with a different perspective about life. And the king goes, okay, thanks, I think. Sends Daniel off, and that's where we're going to pick up the story. Because it was a big tree, the big tree fell. There was that, that the big tree regrew. There was that super awkward interpretation. And now let's pick up the story down about, there you go. But King Nebuchadnezzar forgot Daniel's advice. So everything Daniel had predicted happened 12 months later. Remember that figure, 12 months. As the king was strolling across the roof of his royal palace in Babylon, he uttered these foolish words. Here they are. Isn't Babylon a great city? I have built this royal residence from the ground up with my own might and ingenuity to honor my own majesty. Now, here's where this story becomes uh, uh, maybe a little dangerous to us. To me, King Nebuchadnezzar is a little bit like a comic figure. Everything is exaggerated by him, right? Because it's very easy for me to look at this story and go, well, thank God I would never say that. Therefore, this doesn't apply to me. No, this is you and me in exaggeration. Because the truth is, you and I have had thoughts like that not about a grand kingdom, but about our own life or something we have done or something we're able to do or something we own. We can just see it exaggerated here in King Nebuchadnezzar. By the way, if anyone had a right to sort of toot his own horn, it might have been Nebuchadnezzar. I said a while ago, he might have been the most powerful person ever to have lived. 
So Nebuchadnezzar lived in the city of Babylon, a city he had built. Do you know how big Babylon was? Are you ready for this? It had walls that protected the city, and the walls encompassed 200 square miles. Think in your mind. Healdsburg to San Francisco, down the 101, and everything to the coast. One city. Within that city, Nebuchadnezzar lived in three different palaces. And his main palace, are you ready for this? You know how big your house is? Nebuchadnezzar's main palace, 775,000 square feet. 17 acres. And they housed, among other things, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. That city was so well protected that that wall that encompassed 200 square miles was four stories high. And it was so thick that historians tell us they regularly had chariot races on the top of it. Nobody's going to beat that wall in with a battering ram, I can tell you that. It was virtually impregnable. So he says, isn't this great Babylon that I have built with my own hands? How many months later was it? Do you remember? Twelve. Yeah, we're going to come back to that. Let's go on in the story. Instantly, the heavenly decree against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled he was driven away from all that is human, and he began to eat grass as oxen do. The dew of heaven fell and drenched his body. In time, his hair grew as long as the feathers of an eagle, and his nails grew long and curved back on his hand like the claws of a bird. I'm of a mind to believe that Nebuchadnezzar at this point spent little time in front of the mirror, admiring how handsome he was. Okay, let's go on and read. Seven seasons passed over him until he learned that it is the most high God and no other who is the, what are the next two words? Would you read them out loud, please? True sovereign. Wow. Over all kingdoms on earth, and he grants authority to anyone he wishes. A huge change of perspective. Now let's see how this plays out. When these days of exile came to an end, this is Nebuchadnezzar writing the story about himself. I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up toward heaven and I came to my senses. Can I just pause right there and say this would be a good morning for all of us to look up to heaven and to come to our senses? Yeah. And, and notice what happens in his life. I blessed the Most High God and I praised and gave glory to the one who lives eternally. Wow. Now there's something going on in Nebuchadnezzar's story that would be so good for us and we're going to dig into it in these last few minutes. So, we've all heard this principle. Your outlook de determines the outcome of your life. In other words, if you have a positive outlook, 
you probably have a positive outcome. And if you have a negative outlook and you're dour, you're probably going to have a negative outcome in life. And I believe by and large that to be true. Here's the problem with that. There's, there's a two or three steps in the middle that get overlooked. <clears throat> so Daniel basically said this to King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, hey, you have a wrong perspective about life and how it works. And I'm telling you, you need to change your outlook. So, Nebuchadnezzar tried to change his behavior without changing his heart. Anybody relate to that? Shake your head like this, because we've all done it. And we might even be doing it right now. And people who study these things tell us over and over again that if you want to measure the amount of stress in someone's life, you measure how different they are out here in their actions from who they actually are in here. And the more you try to change this without changing this, the more stress you invite into your life. We were made to be integrated individuals to where we live out of what's actually in our heart. And when we get our heart in the right place, our actions take care of themselves. And we live in this wonderful place of peace because we are fully integrated and just one person. But when we have an image that's different from the substance of who we are, life gets really challenging. For Nebuchadnezzar, it lasted 12 months where he was changing what was happening out here without changing what was happening in here, and he could only hang on to it for 12 months. And then it got to be too much. It's that shift in here. Now, here's something you and I need to know about our outlook, okay? To change our outlook, we have to actually change our inlook. Got to change what happens in here. And actually, to get a really good understanding of what's supposed to be happening in here, we have to take an up look. This is what happened in Nebuchadnezzar. He said, at the end of this period of exile, I looked where? I looked up and I came to my senses. That enabled me to look in. And when his up look changed his in look, it automatically changed his outlook. Everybody on board with that? That's so important for us to know <clears throat> because that is what needed to happen in Nebuchadnezzar's life. So what needed to change in here? That's what we're going to dig into over the next four or five minutes. Take a look at what's on the screen. And we're ready for the next slide. There you go. <clears throat> all of us come with this inborn nature that we are owners. You know how I know that? Put a couple of two-year-olds in a room filled with toys, and what do they do? Immediately, they gather as many toys as they can, and they say the all-important one word. What is it? Mine. Yep. 
That's an ownership word. It's part of the brokenness in us. Now listen, when we buy into things as owners, and when we look at the things in our world that, that are under our care, and we consider ourselves owners of our world and the things in it, it sets us up for pride. Who has never heard this statement? Well, yeah, you want to buy a house because it gives you the what? Pride of ownership. Yeah. You see, pride basically says it's mine. On the other side, manager, when you know you don't own it, the overwhelming sense that you have is not one of ownership and mine. It's one of responsibility to properly manage it and take care of it. Not only that, when we look at it as ownership, then it sets us up for consumerism. It's not only mine, it's all about me, right? It's mine to do with what I want to. And I'll spend my money however I want to spend my money. And I'll do with my car whatever I want to do with my car. And I'll do with my talents whatever I want to do with my talents. Because by golly, when I go through this life, I'm going to make sure I don't get shortchanged. On the other hand, when we view ourselves as managers, we realize it's not about us at all. It's about blessing others. It's not for me. It's for others. Ownership says it's about arrogance. I can take pride in what I own. It is about me. Management says, no, it's about humility. It's about what I've been entrusted with. Ownership says, I not only deserve what I have, I think I might deserve more. There's that whole sense of entitlement. Management, on the other hand, says, I know it's not about me. I am just grateful for what has been entrusted to my care. And last of all, ownership leads to this place of bondage where we're caught in our own echo chamber and it's all about us and it's all about what we can buy and it's all about where we can go and it's all about what we own and particularly, it's about what we own compared to what other people own or don't own or where we can go that other people can't go. And, and there's just such a bondage that comes with that. On the other hand, management sets us up with this wonderful space of, of freedom where we can give away and share and invite other people into our world and share freely with them because we're no longer bound by what we own. We have been liberated to be wonderful managers. Everybody on board with that? Now, I said this is easy and profound, but what else did I say it was? Hard and difficult. There are days when I get this really good. And then there are days when I find myself completely on the wrong side. And God has to tap me on the shoulder and say, now he's never threatened me with seven years out in the field. Thank you, God. 
but it isn't that I haven't deserved it sometimes. This transformational shift, as, as we wrap this up, I want to tell you what it is. Now, Nebuchadnezzar lived about 600 years before Jesus. And there is this thread that runs all the way through Scripture where God is inviting us to embrace the idea that he actually owns it all and that we are just managers. But the entire human race, even as we still do, struggles and struggles and struggles to get that right. And it wasn't until Jesus came and lived it out perfectly in front of us that we were ever able to even begin to grasp what this is like. And can I tell you that this is what people call the Jesus way of life. I want you to think with me for a minute. Can you think of anything that Jesus owned? I know one thing he owned. It was a seamless garment, a robe that they took from him the day he was crucified and they tossed dice to see who would get it. And you know what? That was the sum and total of Jesus' estate sale. Right there. Guy came to him one day and said, Jesus, I'll follow you. But, And Jesus said, I need to tell you something. Birds have nests. And foxes have dens that they live in. But dude, if you follow me, I can't even tell you where we are going to be sleeping tonight. I don't have a house. I haven't even rented a house. Look at me. Everything I own is on my back right now. You see, Jesus was so liberated from this idea of ownership that he was completely free to live life without any of the bondage of ownership. Now, he doesn't call us to sell everything and become traveling whatevers. He may ask one or two of us here and there, to do that. I, I don't know. He has that option. But by and large, he doesn't. What he does invite us to do is he says to, Marie, to me, okay, Ron, you have a car and a truck and a house and a property and a wood shop. Would you kindly just sign that over to me? and recognize it's not yours. It's yours to manage for the benefit of other people. It's not yours to manage for yourself as a consumer. It's yours to manage. <clears throat> I had a job I needed to do at my house and that job required a belt sander this last week and I go out in my shop and I cannot find my belt sander, which was a little disconcerting to me. 
And Monica said, well, you probably loaned it to somebody. I've been telling you, you need to write all that stuff down. And I was like, yeah, I know, I know. Try to think of who you might have loaned it to. So I made two or three phone calls to my close friends. And they said, no, you didn't loan it to me. You didn't loan it to me. And, and so now what am I going to do? So I finally go out in my shop and, you know, I, I have... There are other people that live on our property, our daughter, her husband. Uh, they have three kids. They were all home over the Christmas vacation. So I'm wondering, which one of those grandkids? <laughs> I dig a little deeper, dig a little deeper. I find my belt sander. It's been put away in a place I don't usually put it. So I don't know who did it. It doesn't really make any difference. No one stole my belt sander. No one borrowed it and didn't give it back to me. <clears throat> I pull it out, and it's broken. The nerve. Somebody broke my belt sender, and then wrapped it up neatly and put it in the bin with other sanders. I don't know who did that. I'm not digging into it. It's probably good that I don't know. But you know what I did do? I got, I got on the phone and I called two friends that I know work in construction and I said, do you have a belt sander I could borrow? And you know what both of them said? The first one said, <clears throat> I don't know if I do, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to find it. And after a few hours, sent me a text message that says, I guess I don't own a belt sander. I thanked him. And the second friend responded to me and said, do I have a belt sander? Yes. And it is yours to use. And I went to his house, I picked up the belt sander, I did the job, I took it back. And I thanked God for that friend who recognized that he was not the owner of that belt sander, he was just its manager. Everybody on board with that? Yeah, that is how life is supposed to work. Now listen, we're going to sing a song in closing. It's a prayer. I want to read you a verse, and then we're going to sing this song. But here's the verse. I mean, here's the verse from Scripture. It's one of my favorite verses because it's probably one I need most, okay? Paul writes this, Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't let the world... Listen, I'm going to give you my translation of this. Don't let the world make you an owner. That is the way of the world. But rather... Let God transform you into a new person by changing what? The way you think. This is the way of Jesus, the way of management. Then you will learn from experience how good, pleasing, and perfect God's will for you is. Here's our liberating questions at the very end. What area in my life am I being possessive about?
I don't, I don't say this for, for guilt at all. This is to help you identify where the bondage is taking place in your life so that you can release this today. Second, what grudge am I owning? You have somebody you're mad about? Something you've been hanging on to? Did you know it's possible to own a grudge? Well, you just let go of it. You don't need to own that nasty thing. What possessions am I unwilling to share or give away? What talent do I tend to own and use for my own interests instead of freely sharing that talent in a way that blesses other people? Now listen, that list of liberating questions could go on for a long time. You know that, right? Here's the thing. I'm going to trust that God's at work in your life, and I know that he is. And I'm going to trust that as, as you and I sing this song and make it our prayer, I'm going to trust that God will point each of us to these areas of bondage and possessiveness that we have and that we will have the faith to just drop those chains and walk into the freedom that Jesus gives. It's by God's grace that he gives us this wonderful opportunity. So I invite you to stand, and you can do that right now, and together we're going to sing an old hymn, Amazing Grace, but with a new refrain that says, My chains are gone. And my prayer is, whether it's in the living room where you're watching or in your car, I don't care, or in this auditorium, that if we could hear metaphorically what's happening, that we would hear the sounds of chains dropping all over this place. Let's sing. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.